thank you everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE. Thank you everybody for attending um, this um, panel discussion today, which is in fact um, the first in a new series of events that the Forum for European Philosophy is organizing. Um, and it's called Consilience, as you can see here. And uh, before I introduce the topic of today's discussion and, and the speakers, let me have say a few words about this new event series um, and the, the term consilience, where that comes from. And Perhaps I should also first of all introduce myself. <laughs> My name is Christina Musold. Um, I'm the new deputy director of the Forum for European Philosophy, and I'm also a fellow here at the philosophy department at LSE. And um, <coughs> this new event series um, is an explicitly interdisciplinary event series. Um, the term consilience means unity of knowledge. I think it has roots in uh, Greek, and it was um, used since the 1840s in philosophy of science, but it was then introduced to a wider audience and was used in a wider sense with the publication of Edward um, Wilson's book in 1998 with the title, Consilience, the <coughs> of Knowledge. And in this book, Wilson argued um, that we should try to bridge the gap between humanities and the sciences because he thought that ultimately sciences, humanities, and arts all share the common goal of understanding how the world works. Um, and so much in keeping with uh, the motto of this book, we thought that it would be nice to put on um, an interdisciplinary panel discussion where we bring together speakers from different disciplines to debate about a topic with the explicit aim of fostering interdisciplinary understanding um, and communication. And so what we will try to do is to identify common questions and to try to integrate knowledge from different areas of expertise. Uh, and today we will talk about um, freedom and agency. Um, and you might say that freedom is actually a notion that's at the very heart of the way we think of ourselves as human beings, right? So we all, or most of us anyway, at most times, if not always, take ourselves to be in a position to decide how we want to act, what we want to do. And therefore, we also hold ourselves responsible for the way that we act and, and the things that we do, right? But at the same time, we're also part of nature. And it seems, at least to some, that it is difficult to reconcile this notion of freedom of the will with the fact that we're also part of nature, that we conform to the laws of nature. And also, some psychologists <coughs> and neuroscientists argue that, in fact, our actions are not determined by our conscious intentions and our willings, but are, in fact, determined by unconscious processes in the brain. Um, and so some people have asked the question that free will might, in fact, just be an illusion. Um, and if that is so, we might further ask, well, what are the consequences for then the way we should think about ourselves and also for society, for our legal system, for our notion of moral responsibility, and so forth. And so today, um, we have three speakers to discuss this topic with us. Um, we have Amber Jacobs, who is a lecturer in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at uh, Birkbeck. And her research interests are in contemporary critical theory, psychoanalysis, and feminist thought. And so she will be approaching the issue from that perspective. Um, then we have Patrick Haggard, who is professor at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience and in the Department of Psychology at UCL. And he investigates the brain processes that underlie our experience of free will and agency. And we have Tom P Thomas Pink, who is professor of philosophy at King's College and who has written numerous articles and books on the philosophical problem of free will. 
Um, so the way that this event <coughs> will work is um, we'll give each speaker a chance for about 10 minutes to just introduce their disciplines and their personal <coughs> view on this topic. Um, and then we'll have about 30 minutes perhaps where the speakers will respond to each other and discuss among the panel. And then we'll have another 30 minutes where we will open up the discussion um, to the audience so that you can ask your questions and participate in the discussion. So I think we will start with Tom, who introduced, <coughs> will introduce um, the philosophical problem of free will. Thank you, Christina. Um, the term freedom, I think, is used to cover three quite different things. It can be used to cover a power to determine for ourselves how we act. It can be used to pick out a right, a right uh, to liberty or freedom, and particularly not to be coerced. And then it can be used to pick out a desirable state or condition, which I often refer to as freedom as liberation. What various people in California or the Isle of Wight during the 60s and 70s were particularly interested in. What St. Paul is interested in his epistles, the freedom that Christ brings, for example. And clearly, the idea of a metaphysical power, the idea of a normative right, and the idea of a desirable state condition are interestingly different ideas, but we use the term freedom to pick them all out, and they might well turn out to be related. I think, actually, if you look at the history of ideas very briefly and dogmatically, I think you see a very interesting progression from a time, say, 500 years ago, when people took the metaphysical power very seriously and used this as a basis for all the rest, the right and the desirable condition, but very often giving a scope to this right and this desirable condition that might be not as generous as you would like, particularly the right, to a modern world in which people get very sceptical about the metaphysical power but put a huge lot of weight on the right and, and, and have a rather vague interest, but very, very intense interest in the desirable condition. I'm not sure actually the modern situation is very stable. Um, and it's unclear what it all rests on. Um, I wanted just to say some things about the particular problem area, which I think people have got very sceptical about, and which I, I think some of my colleagues will be talking about as well, which is the idea of the metaphysical power. This is a thing that people used very readily to believe in as something distinguishing humans from the rest of certainly animal creation, but which people seem to become less comfortable and become more sceptical about. Um, now, the idea of freedom as a metaphysical power sounds very grand, but in everyday life we have a, a other more everyday terms in which we use to pick it out. It's up to me, um, or ephemen, as, as Aristotle would have put it. Um, and this idea is an idea of a power, as I said, uh, a capacity to determine for ourselves what? Well, our actions. It's up to me whether I raise my hand or lower it. And not just my, my actions, but also my prior decisions to act. It's up to me what I decide to do. And this up to meanness is the idea of a very distinctive capacity to determine because it seems to involve by its very nature the availability of alternatives. To have this capacity to determine at all, I've got to be able to exercise it more than one way. It's up to me whether I raise my hand or lower it. I have control over whether I raise my hand or lower it. And that idea of control seems to involve the idea of a capacity to determine that's inherently two or multi-way. I can exercise it to do one thing or to refrain, or to do a variety of other things. <coughs> and I start exercising this 
power, this capacity to determine, inside my head at the point at which I take decisions to do one thing or another. And that's why um, the problem about the metaphysical power of freedom has often been called the free will problem, because historically the notion of the will has been used to pick out this capacity to take decisions and form intentions in our head, which then manifest themselves later on in the actions decided upon when I do what I decided to do, like cross the road or go to the cinema or press a button in a psychological experiment or whatever. What's the problem about this, this power, this capacity to determine? Remember, it is a power. Uh, sometimes when people talk about uh, the free will problem, they talk about the conditions under which you're able to do otherwise. I think that's far too weak a notion. I might be able to do otherwise if it was just pure chance what I was going to do, and there was nothing ruling out my doing one thing rather than another. But the idea of a capacity to determine seems to involve something far meatier. It's not chance what I do, but there is some capacity in my part that will determine which I do. Now, the idea of freedom as a power, to, as a power or as a capacity to determine, doesn't just exist on its own. Uh, um, it exists within a field of other powers or capacity to, to determine. One obvious one that philosophers always think about is causal power or causation. If I hurl a brick at a window, that uh, and the window breaks, that will involve the exercise of another kind of capacity to determine. The brick, or the bricks hitting the window, will determine that the window breaks. And we see causation, we think we see causation, all around us in nature. And historically, one central topic in looking at the problem of freedom as a metaphysical power has been to relate this power we think to have determined our actions for ourselves to other kinds of powers in nature, particularly causation. Um, one issue um, you'll all be familiar with is whether the exercise of this power uh, on my part to determine for myself what I do is consistent with uh, my exercise of the power or my actions being themselves predetermined by past events through the exercise of causal powers by those past events. So if at the time of my birth what I was thereafter going to do was causally predetermined by some genetic condition, or by events that occurred to me in my youth, or whatever, would that be consistent with our, my, I myself possessing and exercising this interesting two or multi-way power to determine for myself what I do? Compatibilists think there's, there would be no inconsistency. Uh, our, my actions can be causally predetermined by past events, and yet I myself determine for myself what decisions I take, what actions I perform. Incompatibilists think that's a huge problem. Um, libertarians are incompatibilists who think there is a problem of, of compatibility here, but we're still free. Um, bear in mind that this problem goes deeper. For example, there's also the problem of whether this power to determine our actions for ourselves is itself a kind of causal power. Historically, <coughs> philosophers often assume, assume that it is. So, um, for example, you get very sophisticated theories of freedom as a special kind of multi-way causal power that you get in late medieval or early modern theories like Suarez. You have necessary causes that can only do one thing, like bricks, they can only do one thing when they hit the window, break it. And then there are free or contingent causes like us that can exercise this causal power we possess in more than one way, and we're in control of how we exercise it. And we have a special... Uh, contingency, and that you can't predict in advance which way we're going to exercise this power. 
I actually think it's far from obvious that the power of freedom is by its very nature, as we ordinarily understand it, a kind of causal power. But that's a question that's going to arise. Bear in mind there may be other powers or, or capacities to determine that I haven't already mentioned that may not be obviously causal at all. For example, uh, there are normative powers. If you owe me money, I have a capacity to determine whether or not you remain in debt to me, which I could exercise by, for example, saying I release you and that could cheer you up because you're no longer in debt to me. It's not obvious that my, my legal or normative power to release you is a kind of causal power because it looks to say the event by which I might exercise it when I say I release you doesn't cause your release, but it constitutes your release. So it's not a distinct event in a way that effects are standardly seen as but distinct from their causes. So that there are certainly some powers in the world that are not obviously causal. Why, why should we care about the nature of freedom from metaphysical power? And how might, might we solve, or where do our intuitions about its nature come from? <clears throat> well, it, it obviously seems to matter because it, it turns up as something of significance in morality <coughs> and ethics. So this, part, this, this problem of the power of metaphysical freedom unites metaphysics, or the theory of nature at the very fundamental level on the one hand, and ethics on the other. Um, and the connections go very deep. That's why, for example, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we have this word, use of the term freedom, to pick out a right. So we should expect lots of very interesting connections between the metaphysics on the one side and, and the ethical on the other. But the, the power of metaphysical freedom clearly matters very immediately because it seems to be central to a, a very, very important feature of our moral life, which is blame. When I blame you for something, um, I don't just criticise you for a fault in you, because when I blame you, I'm blaming you for the fault. So blame involves a further criticism beyond the mere detection of a fault. I can find a fault in a vase, because the vase has a crack in it, but I'm not blaming the vase for its fault. But very often when I detect a fault in you, I blame you for it. So I say that the fault in you is your fault. Now why might that be the case? Well, the very natural answer, it might not be the right one, is to suppose that it's the fault in you can be your fault because you had a capacity to determine for yourself whether or not the fault you occurred. And the capacity to determine is often assumed to be this interesting multi-way, or at least two-way power of freedom. So it looks as though your, the position, the conditions for you being truly blameworthy uh, uh, include your possession of this power. Now that may, of course, not in fact be true. It may be that blame has to be understood in some other way, but that's the starting thought. And then there's going to be a, a really interesting question, which I'll just end with, um, namely, if there is this connection between ethics and this, this practice of holding people morally responsible and blaming them, on the one hand, and a metaphysical power on the other, maybe our conception of the metaphysical power has been shaped by ethics. Or maybe our prior understanding of the metaphysical power comes from somewhere outside ethics and has shaped the ethical. And a fundamental question, I think, in modern philosophy has got to be what's driving people's intuitions? Something outside ethics that feeds in from our general picture of the world and then through our, our, our prior conception of the, of, the, of, the, of the power of freedom then starts shaping ethics? Or is it something within ethics that starts shaping or polluting, if you think that our view of the world shouldn't be shaped by this, but at any rate, shaping our view of the world. What's driving 
our intuitions as into their area, the ethical or, or the natural or metaphysical. And I think I'll just, I'll just end there. That seems to be the outline of the question. Well, let's see what the neuroscientist has to say about <laughs> whether there might be some interesting questions <coughs> these two perspectives. Thank you very much. So I'd like to offer the perspective of somebody who's studying the motor systems of the brain. So for, for a neuroscientist, the, the question about um, freedom and, and is really the question about where our actions come from. So you can consider a simple action, raising the arm is the one that comes up in all the textbooks. What caused that? Where does that come from? And it's assumed, really, first of all, that it comes from the brain. In fact, we know it comes from the brain. So that's the fundamental starting point of neuroscience, that our actions don't come from our heart, they don't come from our big toe, they come from the brain. They don't come from any mystical source outside the head, they come from the brain. So then, this is an interesting point, because in philosophy there's always a, a discussion about whether free will is compatible or incompatible with determinism. I think neuroscience is basically <coughs> deterministic. It's got to be ultimately deterministic. The concept is that the processes inside my brain, which lead to my arm going up, which, which, which constitute me raising my arm, those processes must obey the laws of nature. There's no special regime or mysticism going on inside my head. The processes which lead my arm to go up may be extremely complicated. They're certainly not simple. Just looking briefly at the brain shows that. But there's no convincing evidence to suggest that they're, in any sense, exceptions to the laws of nature. So the, the literature's rather littered with, with interesting attempts to show exceptions to natural or neuroscientific regularity for the particular case of free will. So one which is quite well known is uh, Sir John Eccles, outstanding neurophysiologist uh, with Karl Popper, proposed that at the synapse, the junction between two neurons, there might be a quantum mechanical regime. There might be not a suspension of the normal kinds of physical interactions of molecules and particles and quantum interactions. And maybe that's the basis of free will. Very interesting idea, no evidence, no convincing evidence at all. So we're looking at deterministic brain mechanisms. I think if, you, if you're going to be a neuroscientist, you have to ultimately believe that. So that's the card, if you like, that I'm carrying. What that means is, for our topic today, if there is any room left for free action, as far as I'm concerned, that freedom's got to be compatible with determinism. That's the, that's the club, if you like. So when we talk about free action or free will, what, what do we really mean? It seems to me that we mean three things. Many of these pick up on what Thomas just said. The first one is this counterfactual. I did this, but I could have done otherwise. That phrase, could have done otherwise, comes up again and again and again. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we, we invoke or we refer to is, is something which you might call internal agency. So the reason why I did this rather than, let's say, that is somehow internal to me. It's inside me. And in neuroscience, the, the particular meaning of that phrase inside me comes down to this. There's no obvious immediate external stimulus that made me do it. So very often in neuroscience, when we think about voluntary actions or free actions, as they're sometimes called, even in the neuroscientific literature, what you're really doing is comparing an action where there is an obvious external stimulus which provides the starting point of the causal chain that leads to the action. The best example is the reflex. When a doctor tests your reflexes by whacking you on the tendon with a hammer, 
you can see where the cause of the leg movement is. It's the stimulus which the doctor applies with the hammer to your skin and to your tendons. So those reflex actions are triggered by an external stimulus, but there are quite a lot of actions, human actions, which don't seem to be obviously triggered by any immediate, single, direct stimulus. They seem to come from something more complicated. And we'll come back in a moment to what that more complicated thing might be. So the second point is this idea of comes from within me, internal agency. And the third thing that I think we, we may mean by freedom is we, we definitely mean something about subjective experience. I think that lies very close to the heart of, of our intuitions about, about free will. So the concept that I have a conscious experience, that I'm willing my action, that I consciously decide to lift my arm and then somehow that's associated with the movement of the arm, that's also there. So I think if, if one were to not have consciousness, one wouldn't really have this discussion about freedom in quite the same way. Now, the, the, we've got these three things. I could have done otherwise. It's internal agency, and it's got subjective intention. And really what I'd like to make, the point I'd like to make tonight is that recent discoveries in brain science are at least pointing the way towards mechanisms, of, in the mechanisms in the human brain which relate to all three of these things. I wouldn't say that brain science has explained all of these three criteria for freedom, no. But it's pointing the way, it's suggesting where those criteria, where those conditions might come from. So neuroscience typically doesn't like the idea of freedom, it likes the idea of self-generated actions, if you like, actions without an immediate stimulus. These kinds of actions can fulfill these three criteria. It's the key part of the mechanism seems to be the frontal lobes of the brain. That's the evolutionarily most recent part. It's the bit which distinguishes us most from other animals. So that may fit with the idea that we think we have more freedom than some other animals. Let's look at those three criteria then. So first of all, could have done otherwise. Okay? Philosophers think, about, as I understand it, think about could have done otherwise as some sort of uh, issue about how determinate the causal chains are. Is there any possible in set of initial conditions which could have led to me doing so? <coughs> so? Given the initial conditions that there are, is there any other possible world, for example, in which I could have done otherwise? <coughs> now, neuroscience takes the same, the same idea of there being multiple possibilities, and it treats it more in terms of a dynamic process with two time windows leading up to action. So before you do something, let's imagine there's an early period of preparation where you're not quite certain what you're going to do. Okay? And neuroscientists have coined the term response space for the set of possible action alternatives that might exist. So you know, I might do this, I might do that, I might go to a Chinese restaurant, I might go to an Italian restaurant. There's a set of possible alternatives and they're not yet determined. Now, we know quite well, I'm thinking particularly of the work of Chris Frith, what the basis of that response space is. It seems to be an area called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It seems to be very much involved in holding online, in play, different possibilities, perhaps arbitrating between them, perhaps helping the process of selecting just one. So there then is a process which somehow decides it's going to be the Indian restaurant, not the Chinese, and not the Italian. So at some point, the response space narrows down. It narrows down as you approach the moment where you actually act. So in this dynamic process, there's a transition from there being a wide response space to ultimately a response space with just a single event in it, a single item in it, and that's the action that I finally make at the point that you have a, if you like, a fact of agency rather than a, a, a belief in agency. The point that your arm actually goes up, then the response space is only one. 
And we know quite a lot about the neural processes which reduce the response space, which throw out the action alternatives that I'm not going to end up um, going with and lead to the action that I actually make. So you've got a first period where you could have done otherwise, a second period where you certainly couldn't have done otherwise quite as much as you could before because the response space has narrowed. We know the process. It seems to be a movement of activity from the more anterior regions of the frontal lobe towards the back of the frontal lobe and into the primary motor cortex, which is the bit of the brain which actually sends commands to the contralateral side of the body. So if I lift my right arm, we know that it's the left uh, motor cortex which is doing that. So we can at least see something which looks like an analogue of could have done otherwise and the dynamic change in that process by studying the brain. It's still, of course, possible that even after you've reduced the response space to one that you decided well, you are going to lift your right arm up and your left, you might still be able to stop and we might come back to stopping. <coughs> There's an interesting sideline that if you look at when people think they're about to move, if you look at the experience you have of the actions that you're going to make, it turns out that correlates rather well with this reduction of the response space. It turns out that one of the, perhaps one of the perceptions, one of the conscious experiences we have of our own impending action is that I'm going to do this rather than I'm going to do something else. So just briefly moving on to these other criteria, internal agency, in what sense does, does, does neuroscience help us to understand that actions come from within me? I've talked about the primary motor cortex, which, if you like, is the final common path towards an ultimate commitment to a movement of my body. Well, just in front of that, there are two areas, <coughs> two sets of areas, one in each hemisphere, which are profoundly different. You've got the lateral premotor cortex on the side aspect of the, of, of the brain, which is very much concerned with responding to external stimuli. So it's the region which codes, for example, for the fact that green means go and green means press one pedal and red means press another pedal. That's a completely arbitrary association. You've learned that. Okay, it could be the other way around. We can imagine a possible world where the traffic lights go red in order to mean go. So you've learned a sensory motor association. That's all happening in this lateral part of the cortex. But in the middle part of the cortex, there's this interesting set of areas, supplementary motor area, pre-supplementary motor area, which seem to be active not when we respond to an external stimulus, but when we produce an action which is somehow independent of an external stimulus. For example, if you ask somebody to press a button, but it's up to you which one, it could be this one or that one, you'll see more activity in these medial frontal areas and less activity in the lateral frontal areas. So to the extent that we're generating the information inside our brains about what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, and whether we really want to do it at all, you're looking at this medial frontal region. And what's interesting about those is they seem to be unusually unusual in their pattern of connection. Most of the cortex is widely cross-connected between one cortical area and the others. But middle frontal regions seem to take a completely different class of connection, not from the other regions of the cortex, but through a subcortical loop, through a rather old system called the basal ganglia. And that's probably because when they're choosing, when you're choosing internally what you're going to do, rather than responding to green and red lights, really what you're doing is you're using a loop, which is probably quite strongly based on, what did I do last time? And that's coming through this subcortical loop. So just finally, um, <coughs> this idea of subjective intention, feeling of intention. Um, I really want to tell you just about one astonishing experiment, which I, I wish I was associated with, but it's nothing to do with me, but it's so uh, insightful or impactful in what it says. There are very few cases where, for clinical reasons, it's appropriate to directly stimulate the human brain inside. Okay? And the main one is that some forms of epilepsy are drug-resistant, and instead of drug treatment, neurosurgical treatment is used. 
a bit of the brain which is responsible for the epileptic form activity is removed. Okay? Now the neurosurgeon has to make sure they cut out the right bit. So what they do is before they cut anything out, they insert into the, onto the cortical surface a grid of little electrodes which can monitor the electrical activity of the neurons in the brain. So the patient, a hole is made in the patient's skull and a whole sort of uh, matrix of electrodes is stretched out on the cortical surface. And the patient is monitored, they're completely awake, they have these electrodes uh, recording, wires coming out of their head, the electrical activity is recorded, and the question is where is the seizure coming from, which bit should be cut out. But the neuro neurosurgeon can also stimulate through the electrodes, particularly in order to check that he doesn't cut out the bit of the brain that's responsible for something important, like speech or language or moving your arms. So the patient is completely awake, with the wires coming out of their head, they're simply asked by the neurosurgeon, what do you feel when I stimulate you? So they know they're being stimulated, they don't know which electrode is stimulating them, they may not know exactly when they're going to stimulate. The good neurosurgeons sometimes say, now I'm stimulating you, but they don't actually switch on the machine to try and fool the patient, that's called a catch trial. But the really important thing that I want to say here is a study by Itzhak Fried in 1991. When he stimulated the supplementary and pre-supplementary motor areas, these medial frontal areas in which seem to be responsible for internally generated action. The patient, who was completely still, completely awake, and completely conscious, would say things like, I want to move my right arm. I have an urge to move my left leg. They would report an experience which, which seems, at least from what we can understand from the sort of clinical report of what they say, seems like, like wanting, like volition. It seems to have some of the qualities that our everyday desires and volitions and intentions have. Now, there's something really important here. The really important thing is that the patient has not actually yet moved at all. Okay? So there's no way that they could be, for example, telling themselves a narrative story or making up the idea that they must have had the wish to move their arm because they noticed their arm moving up and down because the arm has not yet moved. They're experiencing something which is much closer to a perception, it seems to me. We know if you stimulate the visual areas of the brain directly, people perceive flashes of light. Okay? I think this is something similar. People are perceiving intentions, urges, volitions. And they're not doing it just as an illusion. They're doing it as a, a byproduct or as part and parcel of the brain activity in that area. And the really interesting thing is that that movement clearly isn't free will, because it's not the patient who's having the urge to move. It's the neurosurgeon who's applying the urge to move into that patient's brain. So what that, I think, shows is there's a big gap between saying free will is just an illusion, on the one hand, and saying that volition is a product of a completely deterministic mechanism, <coughs> in this case, in the frontal lobes. So um, just to, just to summarise, then, I think we, we can talk about self-generated actions in the brain. I think the processes that underlie them are complicated. They're somehow independent of any single obvious <coughs> external stimulus. I don't think that means there's no cause. I don't think it means there's something mystic which comes into my supplementary motor area and makes it fire when I voluntarily lift my arm. I think more the point is that the cause is everything. The cause is some rich context of what the whole of the rest of the brain is doing, possibly funneled through these subcortical loops. So we're not really, we, we, we have causes for our self-generated actions, but they're complex in space and time. We're not going to then be really free in the Cartesian sense, perhaps. But our brain does contain machinery which allows us to track and monitor and understand uh, what we're doing now or what we're about to do. And interestingly, it's maybe something that comes up, if we don't like what we're doing, the brain also contains machinery which will tell us to turn away.
for example, that it ended badly last time. Oh, that was very fascinating. <laughs> I think there'll be a lot of um, interesting questions um, uh, to follow up on. So first, okay. Thank you very much. I'm intrigued to be in such a genuinely interdisciplinary forum. I don't think I ever have actually been in such an interdisciplinary forum. I'm from the humanities, and that's the approach that I'm going to be taking with regard to thinking about freedom and agency. More specifically, a psychosocial approach, which I suppose it could be described as one which interrogates the complex relationships between the psychic levels of experience and the social reality structures and processes. So in the professional and intellectual and academic circles that I'm familiar with, freedom is one of those unsayable, heavily problematized, deconstructed words like truth, and like self, that have been relegated to the category of the always in inverted commas, and never ever said without a self-reflexive parodic gesture. So <laughs> I'll be doing that a lot then. So certainly, in my intellectual context, I'm not free actually to appeal to notions of freedom without being keenly aware of the profound intellectual baggage of history that such a term, term carries. <laughs> and I suppose that's what I'm going to be talking about, the, uh, taking my approach from a kind of deconstruction of what we would understand freedom to be. So when I hear the word freedom, I instantly become suspicious. I'm much more used to hearing about subjection, coercion, interpolation, but not freedom. It's actually, I'd say, an empty signifier that only gains meaning according to the specific context in which it appears, as we've actually, this has just been a really good example of, of that. It's also been appropriated in, in pernicious discourses as well as benign and more worthy causes, which of course is a matter of opinion. But freedom, for example, is of course one of the favorite words of neoliberalism and late capitalist consumerism. You only have to walk around from A to B in London, every bi most billboards and adverts are telling you that if you have this car or this phone or that holiday or that bank account, then you'll be on your way to freedom. This or that therapy, this or that product will allow you to feel free. So freedom, which I've never understood what that meant. We might be able to discuss that. So freedom appears as a term that enjoys strong currency in these sorts of discourses consumerism, and namely in the self-help industry. <coughs> so the concept then of freedom is, is contingent on context. Con and, um, I want to think about it in relation to theories of power and the theories of the, sub of the subject or of the self, inverted commas coming up again. So we can't talk about freedom without, I think, implicitly being, or explicitly actually, being dependent upon a notion of the subject. So we'll come to that later. I don't believe we're born free and don't even believe in ideally or hypothetically in a free subject of agency <coughs> who is in charge of her aim, self-knowing, unified and rational. And this is intellectually because I'm looking through the post-structuralist critique of this humanist idea of the subject which we can come back to, a subject of the rational enlightenment thought who knows what she wants to do, is in charge of her conscious aims 
and has this idea of a teleological progression towards self-improvement or perfection or truth or reaching an end point of tra fully transparent knowledge. It's that kind of idea of the subject that I think freedom is often used to reproduce and perpetuate, hence the desire to deconstruct such an idea as freedom. So, for example, psychoanalysis would be one discourse that has been used in this post-structuralist or deconstructive critique of ideas of freedom. Psychoanalysis disrupts any idea of the free subject of agency, precisely because of the notion of an unconscious. So the unconscious means that at some level we are always strangers to ourselves. Freud once said in, this, in a footnote to one of his cases when he's in the middle of interpreting a dream and bringing kind of opacity to, into clarity and bringing, bringing darkness into light, he then said, actually though, there is a navel in the dream, an unplumbable point, a point at which we just cannot know, an unknowable blind spot in, in the, the <coughs> psyche and in knowledge. The implications of that are profound. The unconscious means that our motivations can never be fully known to us, that we will speak and act according to motivations and desires which will remain unconscious, yet we can't escape from. So psychoanalysis provides a massive critique and problematization of the notion of, of freedom and agency, since we are always, in a sense, blinded by the blind spot that inhabits the mind or the unconscious. So the next thing to say, I suppose, is that one is born into a pre-existing structure of social and symbolic and psychic relations. So we're born with an unconscious into a pre-existing structure of psychic and social hierarchical networks of, of relations. The very possibility, I would maintain, of us emerging as a subject is via these structures. We are, in fact, an effect of them, part of them, inextricably bound up with them, so that there never was a before, there never was a time of a whole, pure subject, uncontaminated and free, who then confronts the social in all its manifestations. The subject, in fact, is constituted by these pre-given stru structures, it's not a matter, then, of breaking free from the shackles of social oppression in this, in this discourse that I'm talking about. It's not a matter of disentangling oneself from them. These structures are inextricably bound up with our origins as subjects. They are us, as it were. So there's no standing apart from the socio-symbolic. Hence, Althusser's notion of the interpolated subject we are always already interpolated by pre-given sociolinguistic systems of power that give us a position from which to say, I. So all of this, what I want this to, to, to be used to convey is the basic point that there is no outside of power. Hence, the idea of freedom then becomes extremely complicated. We may want to think about if there's no outside of power, how is this notion of freedom functioning? So this critique and deconstruction of terms like freedom and agency, essential intellectual practices in the humanities, who think the humanities likes to take its point of departure of the idea that we've done away with the idea of the rationalist enlightenment subject, steeped in ideas of teleological progression 
to perfection and truth. These ideas of freedom and agency that you see in the, on the billboards and in the self-help books and in many other discourses, neoliberalism, are associated with the tradition that posits this autonomous subject, which I'm saying cannot possibly exist through the lens of such thinkers of Marx, Freud, Lacan, Althusser and Foucault, who would be the thinkers that I would identify with in thinking about possibility of freedom and agency, which becomes radically undercut with the, this idea of the interpolated, split, multiple, fragmented subject created by and slave to the myriad of forces, hierarchies and structures of power that pre-exist it. And no longer is there a viable idea of a kind of authentic free subject that can stand apart from or master these forces that creates it. Okay, so that sets up the idea that freedom is radically undercut by post-structuralist theories from the humanities. Agency, however, is a different matter, and to my mind does not and should not have to be abandoned along with freedom and along with the subject as I've just described it. However, it does, I think, need to be re-theorised in relation to these ideas about the subject, whose freedom is radically undercut by these pre-existing structures that produces it. <coughs> So agency is a notion, for example, in feminism that comes up a lot. If you're involved with a, a movement or a set of ideas whose desire is change, clearly you have to rely on some form of or some notion of agency. So any kind of politics of liberation or emancipatory politics, you know, a, a, a pressure group or a movement, something that believes in social transformation needs to have some working notion of agency to be viable. However, to fall back on ideas of agency which come from this humanist tradition, which believe in an autonomous, rational subject who knows what she wants and how to understand her intentions, that's not viable for a contemporary post-structuralist feminism. We need to think differently about agency, which doesn't reproduce that enlightenment rational subject, which is associated with coercive um, systems of oppression and mastery. Do you see, see what I'm saying? So we need agency, but we don't need the agency that's associated with forms of domination and thought belonging to this idea of rationality described before. So how do we re-theorise agency? That's the big question. Uh, we're not just passive slaves to the power structures structured and pre-given forces that produce us. Otherwise, I'd, be, I'd give up feminism and any kind of attempt to believe in social transformation if, and just embrace a nihilistic, kind of deterministic resignation. Okay, I'm not doing that. Agency has to be rethought. Personally, and, well, personally, I mean, for my discipline, I'm rethinking agency via an ancient Greek concept, actually, called metis, meaning cunning intelligence. This is a really intriguing concept which is set against ideas of platonic truth and it's described as a practice and an action of tactics and subversive movement that undoes power relations and most crucially finds roots and ways out of oppressive entrapments via ruses and cunning. And it all sounds very... Um, vague. In fact, it, it was based in ideas of hunting and fishing. Um, 
to do with in, uh, traps and finding ways out of traps based on the idea of the octopus and the fox being two models of how to find one's way round power structures, the weaker overturning the stronger for survival. So it's based in survival mechanisms of hunting and fishing. Michael de Certeau, the French anthropologist and social theorist, um, also, <laughs> as well as me, <laughs> um, decided that Metis was a useful concept to come back to in relation <coughs> to thinking about agency and power. So Michael de Certeau based his, has this idea of tactics, how one employs tactics in the practice of everyday life to resist and subvert the, the hegemonic structures of power <laughs> in order to find, so he doesn't use the word authentic, but kind of ways through the, the hegemonic domination of the grid of discipline that people like Foucault identified for us. So I haven't got time right now to go into the details of this very beautiful and profound notion of cunning intelligence from the ancient Greek philosophical text. But I'd like to end with a quote from Michael de Certeau, who uses this idea of metis to try and theorise agency in a world where power um, organises and makes possible the subject, hence the impossibility of enlightenment notions of freedom. So this is Michael de Certeau. Many everyday practices, talking, reading, moving about, shopping, cooking, are tactical in character. And so are more generally many ways of operating. Victories of the weak over the strong, whether the strength be that of powerful people or the violence of things or of an imposed order. Clever tricks, knowing how to get away with things, hunters cunning, manoeuvres, polymorphic simulations, joyful discoveries, poetic as well as warlike. The Greeks called these ways of operating metis, but they go much further back to the immemorial intelligence displayed in the tricks and imitations of plants and fishes. From the depths of the ocean to the streets of the modern metropolises, there is a continuity, continuity and permanence of these tactics. And his book, The Practice of Everyday Life, goes on to show us how in absolutely, in one day, one is resisting and producing ruses and tactics to subvert the grid of discipline. Hence, you get a sense of agency and resistance, but you don't reproduce the humanist notions of freedom and agency that I want to get away from. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. So um, I would suggest that we perhaps um, have a little discussion among the panel until, say, 7.30, so that we will still have 30 minutes <coughs> for discussion with the audience. Um, I think there were many fascinating points raised, and um, I was wondering, in fact, whether the distinction that you made just between freedom and agency might, in fact, be related to this um, sort of more compatibilist notion of freedom that both um, Tom and Patrick also appeal to that sort of isn't based on this idea of the unmoved mover and sort of somehow action coming out of nowhere but that in fact sort of sees the idea of agency or freedom as um, being compatible with laws of nature and as it were with society structures perhaps as well. So maybe you want to say something about that. Can I just say something about the relationship between theories of freedom as a power and theories of agency. Um, it's very pertinent to uh, um, the natural, what we might see as more naturalistic models of agency. I think 
Um, one very, very distinctive feature of what we might call the post-medieval uh, English language tradition, post-Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, uh, had a huge effect in this area, theories of freedom and agency, is that you get attempts to give accounts of human action, but also do duties as accounts of human freedom. Um, so, um, a lot of English language compatibilism has been dominated by models of, agent, of, of, of freedom, which are essentially a sophistication on a certain model of agency. What is it to perform an action? It's to do something as an effect of a prior mental state that's something like a desire or a want to do it, which is itself passive. That's got to be so, otherwise this causal theory of action would be viciously regressive. So you define an action as an effect of something else, which better not itself be a further case of action. It's going to be passive. And it's going to be a desire to do something, <coughs> pro-attitude towards doing it. Um, and what's freedom? So, you know, I crossed the road because I wanted to. That's, a, that's in the case of intentionally or actively crossing the road. And what's freedom? Well, that's going to be something like the capacity to cross the road if I want to cross the road and to avoid crossing the road or stay this side if I want to do that. So it's a, a general capacity to do what I want, whatever I want, as an effect of wanting to do it. So the same theory that provides your theory of action provides the theory of freedom. Um, and it's clearly a metaphysically fairly unproblematic theory of freedom, provided you're happy with desires or urges, provided you're not completely sceptical about mental states. And the kind of power you're introducing is a fairly unproblematic kind of power, provided you're happy with powers, not everyone is, um, because it's a causal power, ordinary causal power, attaching to this relatively metaphysically un unproblematic event in your head, the desire or urge. And notice, it's, it's a fairly unproblematic sort of one-way causal power. You've, just as the brick hits the window, can only do one thing if it does anything, so you've got two different kinds of metaphysics. You desire to cross the road. If it does anything, it's going to produce one effect in crossing the road. Otherwise, of course, nothing might happen because something gets in the way. And then you've got this other mental state, a desire not to cross the road. And if it produces, if you have it and it produces any effect, then it'll lead you to stay where you are. So you've got one-way causal powers attaching to distinct metaphysically unproblematic entities. And they're just the entities that you use to characterize what action is. Um, this is very, very novel. If you look at earlier philosophical theory, you do not get the same materials providing the theory of freedom as a metaphysical power and the theory of action. And actually, it's quite striking that one should take it for granted that you should provide the same theory to characterize freedom as you use to characterize action. What's action? It looks as though it's something really quite interesting and distinctive, but in the following way. It's something done as a means to an end. I mean, since Aristotle, a very natural way of thinking about action, something you do as a means to an end. And if you characterize action as something purposive or goal-directed or something done as a means to an end, you're characterizing what's distinctive about action in terms of a relation of event, the action, to an object that it's directed at, which is a goal. So we've got an action directed at something, a goal, which may or may not be actual, depending on whether or not the action is successful, that looks like something, some kind of object of thought. 
freedom seems to be something very different because it seems to be involve a relation between the action and something that expansionally prior to the action, which is the agent. Um, and the idea of freedom is a way of unpacking this relationship of how the agent determines what they do. We unpack it in terms of this multiple path. Why should you expect one and the same theory to provide an account of two such different things? Relationship between an event and action and some object of thought which may never be actual. And on the other hand, that's the theory of action. And on the other hand, the relationship between two things that are better be actual, certainly freedom to actually exercise, the agent and what they do. And in the medieval tradition, you don't get the same theory provided. You get very, very different theories provided for what action is from the theories you get uh, as an account of what freedom is. And what's driven this approximation or this, this assimilation of the theory of freedom to the theory of action is precisely because people found the idea of freedom metaphysically problematic. And they wanted to get a metaphysically unproblematic theory of action to then do duty to provide the theory of this very metaphysically problematic two-way power. I don't think this is a good idea at all if you want to stand, understand our everyday, everyday psychological conception. It seems to be actually not a way initially one would want to go, for the reason I mentioned. But it also seems that where we think we immediately exercise freedom, this is precisely not something that's done as an effect of some prior desire to do it, which is the point of decisions themselves. When I take a decision, I'm not taking a decision on the basis of some desire or decision to take a decision. Decisions are not voluntary effects of prior pro-attitudes towards taking them in the way that voluntary actions like moving your hand up and down or crossing the road are. Um, decisions seem to be, um, we <coughs> seem to regard them as inherently active things that are not straightforwardly voluntary or effects of prior pro-attitudes towards taking them as the actions decided upon the arm. Um, so um, the theory of action and the theory of freedom seem to be two possibly very, very different things. And the modern assumption of taking, thinking that they're more or less sort of sophistications of the same thing is very, very debatable. But let me stop there and, and uh, yeah. hand over to... Right, so because the obvious question is whether we can have then the capacity to determine our desires. Um, well, uh, actually... We just have this unproblematic notion of... What we're, the question is going to come out, and this is a question I'm going to have Patrick, what do you think <coughs> you're actually determining? Because yeah. you were using, Patrick, the words volition, <coughs> want, intention, uh, in a, in a, particularly in this wonderful case of the, 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 the problem of the assimilation, yeah. yeah. as if they were all rather the same thing. Right. Um, of course, historically, they've not been assuming the same yeah. thing. Um, in the Middle Ages, urges, wants, those were thought of as physical states that you didn't directly control, and the thought that you might be able to stim stimulate them by poking something material would be utterly unproblematic. Um, um, intentions <coughs> look as though they might be different, but they were treated as very, very different. And those were what you were supposed to control. Um, I'm not saying you can't stimulate both of them, but as soon as you assimilate the two, you're entering a very, very modern, <coughs> modern, modern theory that the that, debate that, uh, could I um, ask a question or, or react perhaps to, to, to what you were saying? I was very interested in the social structures and um, 
the view that you had of social structures it seemed to me basically quite negative. So there was hegemony and there was a need for disruption and so on, mm. as opposed to teamology and yeah. going up to goals and so on. So there's a, both a positive and a negative view of society in there, which is quite interesting. And I suppose the, the perspective I wanted to offer was at some point, presumably in evolution, there must have been a, a, a development of the brain which gave our, our predecessors, our ancestors, the, the idea of what they were doing, gave them some conscious experience of what they were doing and of what they were about to do. And once you've got that, you, possibly one other thing, the memory for what that meant. So the memory that the last time I felt like this and I did that, it caused a problem or it was great. So if you have a conscious experience of what you're about to do and the memory for where it took you, those would arise as products of brain development at a particular point of evolution. Once you've got that, I think you've got a really important precursor for society. Because then you've got a society where, in principle, people are going to be responsible for their actions, and you can therefore trust them, and you can get along with them, and you can, you can interact with them. And even though you you can set up some basic rules about how people interact, which, which will work. And the, the emphasis that you placed on, on, on metis, which I thought was a, a lovely concept, very, very interesting, mm -hmm. and, and disruption, was really trying to work against that. It was trying to work against the idea, it seemed to me, that, that we, we all have some state of our brains, or most of us are lucky enough to have some state of our brains, which allow us to realize what we're doing, realize its impact, for example, on you, realize that when I last did such a thing which had such an impact on you, I got punished. So even though I might feel like doing it now, I'm jolly well not going to. And really, I, because you're trying to get around all that, you're trying to subvert all that, what sort of society would you then end up with? <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, the idea of a good society, I mean, is that what you're talking There's a possibility of that because of. I was starting from the, the idea that society yeah. might be basically good and that yeah. would be wrong. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, I suppose I'm not thinking of it in terms of good or, good or bad, but I'm thinking of it in terms of power structures, yeah. that it's impossible really to think about a subject in society without power structures. Yeah. That's my, my, and so therefore, <laughs> it's not automatically that society is bad, but that, that we are um, caught within and negotiating hierarchies, which will be to do with subjection and oppression. And there is obviously that thing of learning from experience, and there, there is a place for that. But then how would you account for the systems of domination that exist in society, we don't learn from experience, is what I'm trying to say. So if, if we don't learn from experience, and we can't rely on the fact that we had a memory, exactly what you've just said, that we can't rely on that in order for us to be good to each other, because it doesn't seem to work like that. It means that there's some other force that is preventing that from happening. Maybe it's the unconscious, maybe it's hierarchical power relations of which, you know, whatever it is. The idea that we don't learn from experience disrupts that idea of, of a, a, a kind of a good society. So it's not the, the society that I would hope for would be where Metis could do its work creatively to undo and kind of make less tight and rigid the grid of discipline that culture and social <coughs> organisations are built upon. 
So maybe, so I'm talking, am I answering you yeah. or not? I don't know if yes, I am. I understand what yeah. you're saying. I suppose people perhaps in social anthropology or, or, or social neuroscience would suggest that, that with the capacity to initiate actions, understand what we're doing and be responsible for them, then in fact you might be opening up society because you might be creating um, conditions of uh, <coughs> of being able to assume that what people were doing, that people would be responsible for what they do. And once you've got that, you can begin to trust somebody. So yeah. I, if I lent you some money, I could, I could, I knew that if you didn't give it back to me, then you would be responsible and you'd be punished. And once you, once you have that, then you can actually perhaps have a more egalitarian society. You don't need to rely. Uh, you can treat everybody as equal because you can trust them all to some extent. But do, do you believe that that's a possibility? Really I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's more a possibility because we have yeah. frontal lobes than because we don't. So <laughs> <laughs> to the extent that we have those cognitive capacities right. to, to, to trust to, to trust each other um, and to interact with people in in those ways, those capacities depending in turn on the ability to 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 control our actions and to, be, to, to, uh, to take responsibility for them. Since we have that, we can have, for example, larger social groups, less hierarchical social groups, and social groups where we can interact with other people on the assumption that they're more like us, rather than, for example, only in terms of their role in power structures, as, for example, primates do, where it's the alpha males and the, you know, the right. chimps and all the, the position yeah. in the power structure very much determines the nature of the interaction. With humans, I think that's much less true. We interact with people a lot of the time, and we're perhaps less determined by power structures than those animals are. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's an issue about responsibility here, because I think, Patrick, you're using, using a model of responsibility that um, involves fostering trust by getting people to be, or, 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 or a process arising which people become aware that, that there will be penalties if they don't do what they, uh, they said, for example. Uh, and and, and um, the, the people are being aware that they, 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 they have a responsibility that uh, may be met, uh, backed up by sanctions, then enables them to become, to become trustworthy partners for other people on the level of equality. Um, that, that's a very familiar model um, of, of something like how responsibility for keeping agreements arises. And it's a model that, for example, one is uh, very familiar with in David Hume, famous case of the farmers who need to exchange services, but they can't make a simultaneous exchange. Uh, that would be problematic. So they need, one of them needs to trust the other. You know, they've, got to, they, they've got to help each other in each other's farms on successive days. Has does a chap who who uh, provides the help 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 first? You know how can he expect reciprocation? So a practice of holding responsible through uh, a convention that you when you afterwards you promise <coughs> and do what you say arises that fosters trust amongst the self-interested. Um, I think I think these models are quite attractive. They're not metaphysically problematic course part of what makes them very attractive. But they're not actually, I think, the way we think about our responsibility for things like promise keeping, um, which I think is based on something far more metaphysically problematic. Um, so there's, there's modern 
sanitise Anglo-Saxon responsibility of the sort that David Hume is putting forward, where you give people a motive for, for, for reciprocating, and so you can, you can expect them fairly unproblematic in sovereignty terms to, 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 to be trustworthy and back. And then there's the way we actually think about promise keeping. Because of course, if promising were all about erecting penalties to make sure that people will do what they say, then it would involve very serious conventions, the fact that people should actually have penalties imposed on them if they don't. Of course, that's not the way we ordinarily think about promising. If someone breaks their promise to me, it's my right to forgive them if I wish. Even if, of course, that involves no penalty coming their way for breaching a promise. And even if that involves weakening any convention that might otherwise have led to breach of promising being met with, 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 with sanction. And I think that's because we understand promising as about recognising people's right to determine for themselves what <coughs> they do for other people and under what terms. And this right to determine for themselves what they, people do for other people under what terms, of course, precisely allows someone whose who's right has been uh, infringed by a breach of promise to forgive. Because after all, it's their right to set to put to terms themselves on what people do for them, and it's their right, therefore, to forgive other people if they breach the promise. One of the reasons why I think that, that uh, uh, a lot of modern ethical theory has, hasn't explained promising and responsibility for keeping promises in terms of this right is precisely because it seems metaphysically problematic. Because the right to determine for yourself what you're doing for other people seems to propose, presuppose a capacity to determine for yourself what you do for other people. And that, of course, is the power of metaphysical freedom, which is so problematic. Which brings us back. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's more than one kind of responsibility. Right, and that's a good point, a good point in time to open up the discussion um, to the audience, which I'm sure has many questions. So um, let's start with okay. you. Professor Haggard, um, did the experiment make this distinction between choices, decisions, and urges? That is, did the, did the patient express an awareness of a choice or decision or intention as well as an urge? And secondly, is there a neurophysiological basis for the difference between intentions and urges? Okay, so the neurosurgical experiments are fascinating and very important data. <coughs> but they're done under quite sort of tricky circumstances and they tend to be more um, at the level of clinical anecdote for example, rather than the level of what one would call a design laboratory <coughs> experiment where one could construct something which clearly distinguished between uh, whether somebody was experiencing a decision or experiencing uh, an, an urge. So I find it even odd that the word urge comes up so frequently in this literature. It's even an odd word in English and one reads these long papers of people who are experiencing urges to do this and do that. Um, so, plus of course, if the patient is trying to express in the language they have, a phenomenal experience, which which has got to be odd. I mean, it's got to be strange. I don't know. I haven't had it done to me. All I can do is read what's in the papers. But it, what's interesting is it does seem to be described using terms that are somehow connected to, to this constellation of things that happen before we act. Going to your specific point, they don't tend to say things like, I decide to move my left arm, I decide to move my right arm. No, they, they express something which seems closer to, to, to a drive or a want than to a decision. 
there's a, an important point here, which I think may, maybe also comes back to to, uh, to what Tom Stuff was saying. Most of the, what we know from neuroscience is about very proximate intentions. It's about what happens just before you move your arm, if you like. So John Searle made a distinction between what he called prior intentions. So I intend to go back to Malta on holiday next year. And immediate intentions or intentions in action, which is something like the, the, the sort of concentration on what I'm about to do now as I reach for the, for, for the glasses. And sort of the, the mental absorption in the current action, which slightly precedes its onset. Now, neuroscience, I think, can tell us quite a lot about intention and action, but it can't tell us a lot yet about the reasons why we begin to move towards one action or another, and particularly not about the sort of long-range intentions by which you, you choose your, your, your life, if you like, or at least you have the feeling that it's your life decision. So, Little is known about that. There's an area called prospective memory in psychology, which is a rather, rather promising way of handling that, which is things like you put, you put the dinner in the oven and you know you need to get it out an hour later. Okay, so something about that knowledge that you need to get it out an hour later needs to somehow connect to the actions that you're going to make an hour later when you open the oven. And that's one area which is beginning to move towards an understanding of how choices and longer range intentions are connecting to intentions in action, but in terms of the brain process, it's, I'm afraid it's still quite simple. Just add something to what Petra's saying. Yeah, Very sure, briefly. and then um, I mean, it's your next, your next. One problem we're going to run up against in this area, um, I don't think Patrick and I necessarily disagree about this, is that um, we don't yet know how to relate taxonomy of common sense psychology to the taxonomy of physical processes yeah. in the brain that you're uncovering. And I think what has been problematic in, in the English language philosophical tradition has been a tendency to jump the gun. And, and Thomas Hobbes was a, a case in point. You take the, you try and get a quick fix by analysing <coughs> common sense psychology by using a lot of terms that do unproblematic work in the natural sciences. Uh, particularly uh, by appeal to causation in unproblematic forms. So you try to analyse the difference between a desire and an urge or whatever and an intention in causal terms. Without going into tedious data, those, those attempts are not very successful. Um, and actually the easiest way to distinguish things like desires and intentions is in terms <coughs> of the theory of rationality and the way the rationality, I think, uh, of uh, an intention uh, uh, works in relation to its object and in relation to what might justify the intention rather differently from that of a desire. But that, of course, is working with a whole lot of concepts of normalcy and uh, justification that are very, very distant from the ones that Patrick is using. And that means that the immediate philosophical work is, ain't helping him much. And I see no immediate way out of this problem at the moment. I'd just like to make some observations, and you can comment or not. Um, <coughs> just generally, as far as freedom is concerned, I don't see that there's any such thing. It's, uh, it's a perception that needs a qualification all the time. I don't agree with what Anne was saying there. And um, with regard to uh, Thomas, I would say that um, with the, the conflict between freedom and morality and ethics, so if someone wants to commit suicide, should I let them? Um, and then going on to 
Patrick, more on the mechanical side, if someone's lost the use of their limbs, then their freedom is restricted. Uh, and then on to Amber, and I agree with so much of what she says, talking about modern agency in terms of giving freedom to groups, then you're restricting someone else's freedom, and none of us have got any freedom as such. We're all reliant on forfeiting some of our freedom in order to be able to live in society. Do you want to comment on that? Um, no, I agree. <laughs> 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 um, No, I, I, I agree. I don't know what to say apart from that. Um, I don't think there's no such thing. Yeah, I think that point is really interesting about our so-called freedom being related to other people's oppression. Is something that we might want to talk about more. <laughs> I think the next question was there in the back. I'd like to suggest a, a, a distinction, uh, which in my view is fundamental, between two different kinds. Agency. One, the concept of agency as free will, which requires some form of suspension of causality so that you can, as, as uh, Thomas pointed out, so that you can in some way be held responsible or blamed for your action. This concept of free will that Nietzsche calls the metaphysics of the hangman um, is a, a, a typical example of that would be Kant's theory of the phenomenal world and the numinal world where in the world of the phenomena you have the operation of causality and at some level in a, there's a numinal world where causality to a certain extent is suspended and so you have individual decisions that are, the agent can be morally culpable for. The other conception of agency is that agency is a function of consciousness that you can become aware of what causes particular actions in the natural world or including yourself as a part of the natural world. And as you become aware of how these actions are determined, you can operate to manipulate and change them. Now, there would be no absolute freedom in this case because the mental processes that you engage in to become aware of these factors that are causing your behavior are themselves a part of the natural world and so themselves also uh, causally determined, you can only become more and more aware of causal processes and become more and more free and never completely free. And I would suggest that the idea of metis is an example of, of, of it's a subset of this concept of consciousness as agency because in order to uh, exercise cunning, you have to have some awareness or consciousness of the traps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can I just react to that? I think that's a very interesting distinction. And the, the, the view of neuroscience is that the first class of uh, interaction that you mentioned, whereby the new, the numinal world will somehow change the phenomenal world, that's just too dualist. No. no that, that doesn't work, doesn't exist. The second one really is talking about agency as an experience or a judgment that this action or action outcome is something to do with me. It's somehow associated with, with, with a set of experiences that I have. And that's in fact exactly the concept that's currently used in, in the behavioral 
um, sciences where often they talk about authorship rather than agency. They talk about the sense that one has that one's the author of action. And I think you're right that, that the concept of freedom is perhaps less present there. It's simply the association of an action or an action outcome with the other mental states that I have. I think, I, I mean, I'm following on. I, I, I wouldn't be in massive disagreement with the distinction you're making. Can I just raise a, a worry? We shouldn't assume that freedom as it matters in ethics um, has got to be something terribly dramatic and Kantian. Um, so there are going to be ethical theories that will require something terribly noumenal and, and metaphysically dramatic. Um, it's not obvious that, that our everyday ethical conceptions really require anything like that. If you look at blame, what you require is to make sense of the thought that the fault in you is your fault, and because you had the capacity to determine for yourself whether or not the fault occurred. So we need a power. And we need a power to arise in those areas where we feel that the fault is people's fault. Um, it might have to be a two-way or multi-way power, but at that point we still haven't got to anything about whether um, uh, the, ex the power's existence or its exercise requires um, chance or lack of prior causal determination. Uh, and it could be that um, that issue is not settled within ethics. It could be that that is an issue that actually exists outside ethics. Um, and it comes from the way we, we, we think about the power in a non-ethical context, and then comes to affect ethics from, from outside. I think it's very, very hard to explain why the intuition, the incompatibilist intuition, that freedom of it, ex it exists must be incompatible with prior causal determinism. It's a very common intuition. It's very hard to explain where that comes from. I find when I teach undergraduates that probably two-thirds of them have this incompatibilist intuition very strongly. But only about two-thirds. Another third don't really have it very much. And then there are people who are on the borderline. It's very curious. Uh, uh, most people though, have, a, have, a, have an assumption that if their court actions and decisions were all causally predetermined, then they couldn't be determining them for, for themselves. Where does this come from? Um, I don't know of a good conceptual argument for it. Um, most modern philosophical arguments attempt to settle a matter through conceptual argument. So you have a set of premises that everyone is supposed to accept if they're competent users of, of the relevant terms of action and responsibility and, and, and uh, freedom to do otherwise. And they're supposed to entail an answer to this question of whether freedom is compatible with causal terms. None of the arguments really work. They all turn out to be circular. Uh, um, um, but people go to one side or the other not because they're incompetent at conceptual argument, but for some other reason. What is it? I don't think it's coming out of ethics. I suspect it's coming out of the way we experience our own agency. And I, I, I'd be interested to know whether Patrick might or might not agree with this or Amber, but one of the things that we do do is I think we do have a sense of a power to determine for ourselves what we do. Um, and we also have a sense of other powers removing that power. Imagine losing your temper um, or experiencing very, very great fear. You feel the fear or the anger pushing you to run away, say what you really think about somebody or whatever. And you feel your control reducing. It's a very, very natural way of... We often say, I felt I was losing it. Now... It seems that to imagine something outside your will pushing you in a direction is 
precisely to have a phonological or imaginative representation of your control listening. Now, why that should be, I do not know. It doesn't seem to be anything to do with the way the concepts work, but it's something that we all are familiar with in the way we think about ourselves and experience ourselves, but I think some more than others, which is why I suspect a lot of students come with varyingly strong intuitions, with a majority in one way, but not everyone and some feeling it more strongly than others, without having any, had any conceptual training in the arguments. It seemed to be ineffective. Mm. Mm. Does either of you want to respond to that directly, or should we take the next one? Yeah. I just wanted to come back to your um, mentioning of cunning as agency. Just to say <coughs> that it's, it's crucial to understand metis. Like you were saying, it's to do with consciousness. <coughs> it's to do with a particular type of um, non-strategic, non-predetermined, agency. So Metis is, is characterised by the vigilance of waiting to pounce on, at an opportune moment. It's not predetermined or strategic. It's tactical, which means it's to do with vigilance, waiting, pouncing, uh, anticipating the trap, but not having a strategy which in De Certo's work is linked with a kind of panoptic sort of dominance and system of power, whereas the tactic is always to do with a kind of spontaneity and a vigilance. There's a very particular type of consciousness attached to that type of agency. But anyway, thanks. I'd like to ask members of the panel if any of them feel their views on freedom and agency have been modified by what they've heard tonight from other disciplines. <laughs> <laughs> but also really <laughs> in, <laughs> I think it's utterly crucial um, and what it really you know I was intrigued by both <coughs> presentations and also I really did want to try and get to the bottom of this idea with you Patrick of um, if you, you you agreed with me that we don't learn from experience and how that tallies with the neuroscience I mean to be honest it is like speaking different languages isn't it and I find that feeling of vertigo that that experience puts you into a creative one because it makes you rethink your own position and it's like being in a country not speaking the language, you get a sense of newness towards everything. But I can't say that I can, I, I know exactly how in, in terms of like consilience how I would integrate this knowledge into my understanding of freedom <coughs> and agency, but it certainly 
pr produces a kind of newness that, that speaking in different languages produces. Yeah, we probably have to do a lot of these concerning events before we can begin to truly integrate different areas. Right? I mean, it's very clear from, from branch change, we're not going to solve this one very fast. And that's precisely because, as I think it's become very evident, you've got a subject here that relates uh, the nitty-gritty of, of neural processes at one end mm. to conceptions of desirable social states and political conditions at the other. Um, and, and, and it's probably been doing so for a good thousand years, if not longer. Um, and I think that, um, one, the in interaction between us three is of a kind that has to happen <coughs> for any progress to be made. Um, but also one of the things I'm rather learning is I don't think there's any particular level that's going to be basic or fundamental to solving the entire problem. And that seems fairly clear. Right, so we're moving away from sort of this view that we can reduce everything to the neuroscience or to the biology. Or, or a political solution. Or the, the political other end. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm not thinking... Like or something, I think. Yeah. I suppose I'm not thinking in terms of solutions either. So, I mean, that, that's another way of a way in which we're different. Um, but it, it's intriguing, isn't it? Let's pick up on earlier reduction, which you mentioned. So um, sciences tend to be reductive, but even if you believe that, for example, behaviours and social behaviours ultimately derive from brain, it doesn't do away with talking about social structures. It doesn't no. say we should replace talking about, uh, say, social power relations with talking about dopamine and... and Synapses, no. So I think reduction is not should not be seen as exclusive. It seems there's a contemporary trend in psychoanalysis and neuroscience that they're having a conversation at the moment, which goes over my head. I don't quite know what the conversation is, but I know it's happening. They're trying to have it. Yeah. Okay, we're sort of running out of time, but I think we'll have time for one last question, and I think, or maybe two. Do we have to finish at eight sharp? Like, okay, so maybe two, depending on how fast you can ask. I think the next person was oh, you maybe, and then me. Yeah. I have a question for Professor Haggard. Um, you spoke about the movement of brain activity from the frontal lobe to the, the most processes. Does inter-hemisphere processes have an effect? And if so, could procedures like corpus glassing have an effect on the internal agency? So basically, as far as when we think about the motor system, so the way to approach agency and volition is through the motor system because it each hemisphere has its own motor system. Okay? And there doesn't seem to be any strong specialization to one hemisphere or the other. Not like there is for language, not like there is for spatial representation. You've got two motor systems. Um, one in each hemisphere and each directed towards the contralateral side of the body. Okay? So lifting the right arm involves the left hemisphere. The, there are strong connections between them. I wouldn't say we particularly understand what those connections do, but I don't think that the sort of idea of there being two brains or two wills or anything like that is really the right way to think about it. It's just a duplicated mechanism because we have two sides of our body, two sets of muscles. Well, very, very briefly, in the few seconds I've got, I, I just want to say that, there's, that n none of the panel has, has addressed <coughs> the idea of how, how a jazz musician 
is, is free to improvise a melody or a rhythm. And I, I, everything that's said when I hear people talk about concepts of freedom, it's always dominated by the so-called freedom of choice or freedom, freedom in the sense of control. And, and I think you, you demonstrated that you, you don't have freedom of choice, it's an illusion. Um, but when I listen to a jazz musician improvising, then I think he's not in control and he's definitely not making the choice because he's doing it spontaneously on the spur of the moment. He's not making a choice and he's not in control, but he's definitely free. And, and you people have not said anything about that. Well, perhaps we should do another event on, uh, on creativity sometimes. That would be a very fascinating topic for another discussion, for sure. Um, I think we might have time for just one more question. Yeah, it's a question for Professor Bink. Um, you talk about the power to be able to do something. I was wondering what um, what would you respond to? What would enable this power? Because in neuroscience, you would think that what are these deterministic including the capability of having this power? But if that is determined, then your power isn't really your power. I think this whole area is excessively dominated by worries about causal determinism. Um, I think the real problem is um, not the implications of this power of causal determinism. I mean, I'm very happy for Patrick to run as a working, run causal determinism as a working assumption as a neuroscientist. I'm not, so I, I'm open-minded in this one. What's clearly very problematic is that our idea of freedom seems to involve an element that makes it quite distinctive from the rest of any, any other power in nature because of its inherently two-way nature. Um, um, I do not know of another power that to have it at all, you've got to be able to exercise it in more than one way. Causal, causation doesn't work that way. Uh, you can have ca causal power to do one thing without having causal power to do anything else. Um, it seems at that very, very basic level, before we even talk about causal determinism, completely distinctive. But it's related also, I think, because we naturally think of it as, as to, to another very distinctive feature of the way we think about humans, which is rationality. We tend to think that people with this two-way power have got to have some sort of reasoning capacity that's, that's very hard to characterise in terms that are available to natural sciences. Sharks and mice don't have this control that we have because they're, too, they're not rational enough. They're not within the sphere of reasons. And that is the fundamental issue. How do you make sense within anything like a uh, naturalistically acceptable picture of the world, or capacities like rationality, which I know is a power, and then a power, multi-way power like freedom, just popping up. Whether or not they're compatible, or the existence is compatible with causal determinism. <clears throat> I simply don't know an answer to that, and the programming philosophies tend to be to try and give a reductive account of these powers, in terms of, of concepts used to characterise wider nature, going back to Thomas Hobbes' quick fix and explaining types of so But the reductive programs never seem to work. So we have this, this conceptual scheme that seems, we don't know where it comes from. It doesn't seem to come from our, our concepts we use to describe the natural world. It seems to be immediately available to adult members of our culture and to many other cultures as well. Um, and it seems to be untranslatable into anything else. If it's an illusion, no one's explained the illusion. That, of course, if you think it's an illusion, you need an error theory of, of how you made a mistake. No one's provided one in this area. Can I 
I just um, end by coming back to the jazz thing, the saxophonist. It just reminded me of the film, The Conversation, I don't know if you know it, Francis Ford Coppola, which is about the main character is someone who has to fix surveillance systems into various people's houses to keep an eye on them. It's all to do with power and spying and surveillance, the whole film. And it turns out in the end that the main character is being surveyed and he can't get away from it. He's totally trapped <coughs> and he hacks up his whole flat to try and find the bug. He still can't find the bug. He's being bugged. And the last scene is him getting his saxophone and kind of completely going mad in this so-called freedom of, of expression of the saxophone. So obviously Coppola thought the same as you, but within this intricate prison of surveillance that we live in, the, the kind of jazz solo where he's just expressing himself gets through as, as kind of resistance. So it's a nice way. Thank you. Very nice way to end this interesting debate. And I think everybody was